October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 20, The Honored Dead. Last time we talked about how the Seventh-day Adventist Church survived the Great Depression. The church made hard choices, sacrificing some bureaucracy in order to preserve the missionaries. That's what the priority was for the General Conference led by C.H. Watson. W.W. Prescott was also charged with being a heretic, so really, what else is new? And, uh, and, and we talked about the death of Arthur G. Daniels, the longest-serving General Conference president in Adventist history. But before we dive into today's episode, I want to let you know that we've relaunched AdventistHistoryPodcast.org, and now it's much easier to listen to episodes on the website, and we even have a shiny new store, so you can buy some Adventist History Podcast merch if you are so inclined, and uh, you can support our podcast that way. And I think it's great, so go take a look, AdventistHistoryPodcast.org. I think it's pretty cool. And uh, also, if you support this podcast on Patreon, you now have access to videos of each podcast episode. I think the videos are, are really nifty. You'll get to see me recording the episode, and you also get to see when I mess up, but that part isn't so nifty. Sometimes it's hilarious, though. After I stop recording the audio for the podcast, I usually take a few minutes on the video and talk about the episode that we just did. So you'll get that also. Access to the videos is easy. I'll put a link in the show notes to Patreon, as I always do. And you can just give like a dollar or something and start watching the videos rather than just listening to the audio. Super easy. Go check out AdventistHistoryPodcast.org and our Patreon account. All right, let's begin this episode in 1933, in the midst of the Great Depression, on a particular issue of the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, we find a line by the president of the venerable Michigan Conference, the historic Michigan Conference, the always perennial powerhouse that is the Michigan Conference. And this is what the president of the Michigan Conference writes, quote, the Seventh-day Adventist Church should foster church schools in order that its children may be thoroughly indoctrinated and that the church of tomorrow may be the same as the church of today, end quote. Now, what we should understand from this quote is that in some ways, the 1930s represents peak Adventism. I mean, after Conradi and Fletcher left, the church entered a long period without major defections like that. The newest technologies were being tamed and harnessed for missionary and evangelistic work. The church had weathered the Great Depression admirably. Her missionaries were conquering the world. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. And, uh, and they were establishing printing presses and sanitariums and schools around the world. By now, a, a, a missionary or an evangelist entering a territory, like they had a playbook. Avenus had this down to a system. And things were going well. Now, when you read the pages of the review, you find confidence dripping from, from every word. The, this, this Michigan Conference president wished that the church of tomorrow would be exactly the same as the church of today. How often can you say that about your church? And that attitude that he had began to prevail. 
The early Adventists had always been sure of their climb up the theological mountain. They believed their system could be perfected, that they could still learn from others. They were confident that they were on the right path, yes, but they knew they weren't there yet. They were always building. like They weren't quite there yet. They weren't quite there yet. But by the 1930s, this confidence had become fused with fundamentalist bravado. My friends, we have reached the mountaintop. And I think this confidence comes from the fact that Adventists had finally found a place in the world around them. They weren't these this this disappointed fringe of former Millerites trying to, to shed their embarrassment like a snake shed skin. They weren't on the outside of American respectability looking in. They no longer had to explain what an Adventist was to almost every single Christian they met. They were known. They had big, influential institutions in many of the countries of the world. The General Conference was a legal corporation, and its treasurer wouldn't be out of place in a Fortune 500 boardroom. Sure, Adventists were still outsiders on on certain cultural issues like evolution and the movies. But as we've seen with the fundamentalists and George McCready Price, Adventists and these other outside groups could sometimes understand each other, even work together. Adventists had found a comfortable place in the world, a place where they were recognized and somewhat accepted. This allowed Adventists to still tell themselves that they were prophetically antagonistic toward the world, even while they had quietly assumed a level of comfort with the world around them. Adventism had by no means become mainstream, okay? But if the world was a house party, let's say, then Adventism had gone from standing on the sidewalk complaining about the revelry and the noise to sitting in a chair in the living room complaining about the revelry and noise, okay? As long as we complain, we're, we're okay, right? Our situation in the, in the 21st century is almost polar opposite in some respects. We, we doubt, we question. Adventists today do not even seem to agree on what it means to be an Adventist. Some Adventists are sitting in the living room complaining about the other Adventists who are still protesting on the sidewalk, right? We have a much more confusing situation today. But what some uh, of the traditionalist Adventists today, what they want is is a return, I should say, what they say they want is a return to early Adventism. But it doesn't take long when you when you look carefully at the language they use, when you look at the the source of their enthusiasms, that they're really homesick for the swaggering period of the 1930s. Fundamentalist Adventism. The, the, the supremely confident Adventism. The mountaintop Adventism that could not be meaningfully improved. The Adventism without doubts. What the Michigan Conference president didn't realize was that even if the church didn't change, hello, the world would. And if the church is committed to being Jesus in the world, then the church would have to change too. So this super confidence of the 1930s made it very difficult for the church to change later on when it really needed to change in the decades ahead. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. A brief notice was inserted into one of the back pages of the review, which I'm sure very, very few people noticed. It was just a matter of 
editorial housekeeping. The notice read, we regret that the large number of deaths reported from our rapidly growing church membership throughout the world necessitates a reduction of obituary notices to the simple recital of date and place of birth and death. Photographs cannot be used. Exceptions will be made to this rule only in the cases of older field workers or others whose life and labors have made them known throughout the denomination. Now, there's a lot going on behind the scenes of this innocent little notice. It is, in fact, loaded. In the early days, the review was the community bulletin board, right? It's it's where Adventists met each other and learned where each other, where, where they were, and who left the church and who died and all those sort of things. So while Uriah Smith certainly never pretended to print every obituary of every Adventist who died, you could expect to find a good word about your grandmother in there along with, uh, with John Nevins Andrews, even if Andrews' obituary was longer owing to his accomplishments for the church. But now, for perfectly understandable reasons, okay, the obituary page, that literary cemetery that the review was caretaker of, was going to give its grave sites to its veteran institutional workers. The best tombstones were reserved for those most loyal of denominational employees. I think something like a cult of martyrs was forming in Adventism. And this whole episode is about that. It's a reverence for those honored dead who devoted and gave their lives for the cause. The cause and the institution had become one and the same. At the 1936 General Conference session, church leaders planted a dozen comfortable chairs for the men they called our veterans. These were the people who put in 40, 50, or 60 years of service for the church. Of those who got a longer obituary in that issue of the review that we were just talking about, their length of service and or role in the institution seemed to play a decisive role. Most of the longer obituaries in that issue of the review were missionaries. And while honoring these veterans was a kind and respectful thing to do, there was also the sense of history during the 1930s, a sense that the church was about to lose something. It's rather like what's going on right now, where there's a, a distinct sense in America among those historically-minded citizens that the so-called greatest generation that, uh, that lived and fought through World War II are, are leaving us. It's not just the loss of an older generation, okay? It's the loss of, of something more. It's the loss of, of a witness to something historically and morally significant, okay? The, the people who lived through the Great Depression and, and, and saw firsthand the events of World War II, they accomplished brave and dangerous things. And so church leaders in the 1930s were worried about losing their own version of the greatest generation. And the white was gone, of course. But the blow was softened, I think, by the, the realization that many of her generation were alive to carry their torches. They had memories of the good old days. But now those who had stood alongside Ellen were going, too. Among them was A.G. Daniels and Clarence Chrysler, who was Ellen White's indispensable secretary and later missionary to China. Chrysler essentially worked himself to death in China, catching pneumonia on a trip to Tibet. Willie White, the prophet's son, would follow his mother into the grave the next year. And so the honored veterans were one by one joining the honored dead. 
If A.G. Daniels, now among the honored dead, focused on developing the Adventist ministry after his service as General Conference President, then William Spicy Spicer focused on missionaries in Adventist history. The fact that so many of Adventism's greatest generation were passing away meant that their stories needed to be collected and preserved. Spicer had been in California when he met some Adventists who could talk about these early days. Someone had a copy of the first issue of The Present Truth, the, the, the first paper that James White printed. Spicer moved on to New Hampshire, where he met an Adventist who claimed that that very paper, The Present Truth, had brought her grandfather into the church, and hence she's here also. In Massachusetts, Spicer met Joseph Bates Hall, the son of James Madison Monroe Hall, an old sea captain and friend of Joseph Bates, whom Joseph Bates had convinced about the Sabbath. In New York, Spicer met the son of Frederick Wheeler, whom he considered to be the first Sabbatarian Adventist preacher. Now, Spicer began a fruitful correspondence with Nellie Wheeler Fairfield, a former Adventist who nevertheless remained close to the church by virtue of the fact that her grandfather was Frederick Wheeler, that Millerite preacher who, in a roundabout way, introduced Joseph Bates to the Sabbath. Nellie, like Spicer, was in a nostalgic mood throughout the 1930s. She remembered the good old days in Battle Creek, wishing she had kept more of what she called souvenirs, as if her younger years were just one long vacation from which you sadly have to return home to wrinkled lawns of gray. This desire to preserve and honor the pioneering generations of Adventist history led not only to a renewed interest in Adventist history, but also to a mythology of the Adventist past. Lamenting the tricky worldliness of the present, one Adventist author hoped that, quote, the people as a whole will realize that they have wandered far from the splendid principles of their pioneer forefathers, end quote. C.H. Watson didn't consider Arthur G. Daniels to be one of these Adventist pioneers, but in the funeral sermon he did for Daniels, he testified that Daniels indeed, quote, possessed the qualities of a pioneer, end quote. The technical sense of the word pioneer, describing someone who goes out into unreached territory and begins proclaiming the Adventist faith, was still used to describe the church's missionaries. When the cornerstone of Pioneer Memorial Church was laid in Hong Kong, it was dedicated to, quote, the glory of God and in memory of the pioneers, end quote, by which they meant Abram LaRue and J.N. Anderson and Gertrude Thompson and the other Adventist missionaries who planted the flag of faith in China. In Australia, Julia Squire, when she died, was considered a pioneer, as she was one of the first to accept the message in Sydney in 1891. So every country had their pioneers in this technical sense of the word. But it's the mythologizing use of the word pioneer as synonymous with virtue that began to develop alongside the, the, the technical meaning, and that's what we begin to witness. The word pioneer began to take on an intrinsic authority as those pioneers themselves became members of the honored dead. I mean, how can you disagree with the dead who built this great church for you? Do you think you know better than they do? What have you done by comparison with them? Now, the irony about this mythologizing attitude towards the pioneers is that the pioneers freely disagreed among themselves, and they often maintained respect for each other while doing it. This was a, a superpower that was certainly lost in the age of fundamentalist Adventism. The desire to honor and protect the pioneering past of Adventism is seen in the types of Adventist history that they began doing. 
In the pioneering era of Adventism, history was mostly done through autobiography and prophetic interpretation. William Miller, Joseph Bates, and the Whites all wrote about their 1844 experience and, and on, years past that. Uriah Smith, uh, his Daniel and Revelation and Ellen White's Great Controversy and John Andrews's History of the Sabbath were, were history through a prophetic or theological lens. None of them were trying to do history in the, in the professional kind of detached way that we would do it today. Okay? They, were, they were either recalling what had happened and shaping their retelling of those events to, to lead to um, you know, their theological convictions, or else they were doing a theological reading of history, which is why in the Great Controversy, Ellen White doesn't have anything bad to say about Martin Luther, even though he drank and, and cursed and, and said a whole bunch of anti-Semitic things. Right? Ellen White doesn't bring up any of those things. Why? Well, she's not trying to do, in any modern sense, uh, historical narration of Luther's life. She's trying to make a theological point, namely how a certain number of Luther's theological ideas in, led to the Protestant Reformation and paved the way for Adventism to come, right? Like, that's her, that's her point, and that's why she's, she's writing it. So that's kind of the history that was done during the pioneering era, okay? Now, John Loughborough is our bridge out of the pioneering era. Loughborough was the first to write the story down, even if his story was full of its share of mistakes. Now, after this pioneering era, the church found itself with its first two trained historians with advanced degrees from non-Avenist colleges, Clement Benson with his master's degree and Edwin Albertsworth with his Ph.D. Albertsworth was accused by his students of being a modernist and chased out of the church by Benjamin G. Wilkinson. Now, for whatever reason, by 1926, Benson was teaching at the University of Arkansas and apparently also out of the church, if not in 1926, then at some point thereafter. Everett Dick was another Avenist who got his history PhD at a secular university. His dissertation was the first scholarly look at the Millerite movement, and he intended for the church to publish it. But Leroy Froome took one look at it and labeled it too defeatist. Dick was teaching at Union College, but Froome made sure that neither Union nor any other church institution published this book. The book was eventually published in 1994 a few years after Dick's death. Now, there's nothing, nothing in Dick's research that undermines any cornerstone of Adventism. He, he does mention that some Millerites were smoking at a camp meeting, uh, but of course, Millerites had no problem smoking. That, was a, that, that, that health decision was a later Adventist thing. Uh, Dick also mentioned that William Miller occasionally was prone to outbursts when he just couldn't take it anymore from his critics and he could be quite sarcastic and sharp with people. So, I mean, if that's the worst that, that Dick has in his book, one must conclude that Froome's problem with Everett Dick's research is that it just wasn't sanitized enough. It wasn't reverent enough towards the, the subjects of his research. So the job of the church historian at this point was not to tell things as they were per se, but to eulogize the honored dead, which is why those types of historians, Froome, Spaulding, Nickel, Maxwell, thrived over the next few decades. Their histories cemented the fundamentalist, mythologized way in which 1930s Adventism interpreted its past. Now, it's easy to understand why. The 1930s were, were considered by, uh, to be the peak 
Adventism, at least at this point. Why they why we don't want to change the church. The church is great as it is. Not that it doesn't have little tiny problems, but we've we finally arrived at a place that we that we feel comfortable. It's easy to see why why church leaders wouldn't want the church to ever change. Despite the hand wringing about movies and worldly music and just how things were getting worse in the world around us, the Adventist church was succeeding everywhere. When James White first wanted to publish the message in his present truth, he had to do it on credit with the printer, okay? This is not that church anymore. 5,000 people worked in Adventist sanitariums by the mid-1930s. Doctors and nurses and others. 6,000 people taught in Adventist schools around the world. In all, it seems 24,000 people worked for the church. Okay, there's only a little bit over 400,000 Adventists in the world, and 24,000 of them worked for the church in some capacity. Between 1920-1945, enrollment in Adventist primary schools grew by 500%. While Adventist church growth, by the way, was only around 300%. Okay, so, so people are in in the areas where Adventist missionaries uh, have built schools, Adventist pioneers have built schools, like people from the surrounding communities are just sending their kids to these Adventist schools in droves. Adventists, despite their great success at multiplying, are not multiplying faster than people are sending their kids to Adventist schools. The 1936 General Conference session was considered by many old war horses to be among the best they ever attended owing to the spirit of unity present there from the beginning. It's hard to explain this to anyone who has never been part of a large organizational business meeting before, but large meetings have their own climate, okay? This, this spirit of unity was obvious when James McElhenney was selected to replace Charles Watson as General Conference President. McElhenney was accepted and then requested that Watson continue presiding over the session as a gesture of respect, Watson would join William Spicy Spicer uh, shortly after the general conference session as a general field secretary, a cushy government job if ever the Adventist church had one. But what else are you supposed to do with former GC presidents? There was a sense of elation in 1936 that one gets from surviving something dangerous. Okay, The Great Depression was over. The church hadn't just outlasted the Depression. She had conquered it. The hard choices made by Watson's administration had paid off. He had tightened the church's belt at home, but he largely left the missionary service untouched. So Adventism had actually grown during the Depression, grown very, very well. And wages were returning to their pre-Depression levels, and so the choices that Watson had made were, were quite literally paying off. Now, the 1936 GC session was not without tragedy, however. A hotel fire where several delegates were staying took the life of an Adventist pastor and several others. The pastor managed to save his wife, but couldn't save himself. It was their honeymoon, by the way, and the details of the whole story of the of the fire and how he saved his wife, I mean, they were, they're really worthy of a horror novelist, and I'm not going to get into them here. It was just a really tragic story. The, the San Francisco Examiner was transfixed by the story, devoting page after page after page to it of uh, a lot of eyewitness testimony and, and photographs of the whole thing. And they called the Adventist pastor who died heroic for saving his wife. One GC leader shortly thereafter told investigators of a letter that he had received some weeks earlier promising that, quote, 
On the second Sunday of the convention proper, fire will fall from heaven and burn the bodies of those who oppose me. End quote. The letter was apparently written by Victor Hutef, an Avenist who left the church about 1929 and began the movement known as the Shepherd's Rod. Hutef and several companions were questioned by police, but he denied any involvement whatsoever, and that seems to be where the investigation went cold. But it's worth noting two final details. The pastor who died in the fire was working in Wyoming, okay? And his widow testified to the trouble that Hutef's followers had given him, the Shepherd Rod people had given him back home in Wyoming. Okay, he had done a lot of battle with them, a lot of controversy with them. Shepherd's Rod, in case you guys don't know, especially in the early days, would often go to Adventist churches. They would pose as, as good Adventists, even though they, they weren't members of technically many times. Uh, they would picket Adventist services. They would protest it. They'd hand literature out in front of Adventist churches. It was a real problem. It seems like it was that way in Wyoming as well. And so this pastor was having to deal with that rather forcefully. And here he is, uh, the, the casualty of this fire, the Adventist minister who died in this fire. The second interesting thing that's worth noting is that the fire was set in the only doorway out of the hotel, in and out. There's only one entrance, and that's where the fire was set, making any escape dangerous. So it seemed very deliberate uh, that this fire was set. And I should add that Hutef was not the only one questioned during this. There were others as well, and it doesn't. I don't know if the police ever found out who did it. But, uh, but it's interesting in, in terms of Adventist history that uh, Victor Hutef was uh, very, very quickly fingered early on in the investigation. Now, the delegates to the 1936 GC session paused to remember their fallen comrade with appropriate solemnity. He, too, was now among the honored dead after 30 years of service. But the optimism of the moment was just irrepressible. Adventism was growing like crazy. A world map was set up to show the progress of Adventist missionary efforts since the 1840s. It began with a single light in North America, showing the progress of the faith in its first five or so years. Thirty seconds later, another light appears. And so the first few minutes are very slow going, but then different colors begin to appear, signifying the advent, pun intended, of schools and hospitals. Arthur Maxwell, always on hand for a literary flourish, explained the experience of seeing this map as, quote, surely the most amazing, heart-stirring map I have ever seen, end quote. That's, uh, that's some high praise for a map. And I'll put a picture of this map up on our website, AdventistHistoryPodcast.org. But of course, seeing the picture does not do it justice because you can't see all the different colored lights and you obviously can't perceive the, the animation of it. Anyways, Emmy Kern, the GC secretary, gave the usual breakdown of numbers. Avenus administrators love statistics. The big statistic at this meeting, though, was the 150,000 new members who had joined the church since the last GC session in 1930. But Kern was especially proud of the of the 100-plus missionaries the church still managed to send out every year during the Depression. He called it nothing short of miraculous that during the Depression, no one mission station was abandoned. On the contrary, the, the church grew 41% during this time, even while the number of missionaries coming from North America was dwindling. We've mentioned before how since 1922, that was the turning point when there were finally more Adventists outside of North America than there were in North America. 
And, and so we're starting to see this with the missionaries that are being sent as well. A larger share of missionaries are coming from places outside of North America, places like Australia and Brazil, and not the United States. Now, these missionaries had that pioneering spirit that C.H. Watson talked about. Many of them graduated from Loma Linda or some other Adventist college, and they would immediately go out into the mission field, frequently for decades, just coming back on furlough every, every so often. I've mentioned before that the golden age of Adventist missions was somewhere around 1900 into the 1930s. And, and guys, this is not a safe time to take up the mantle of being a missionary. Aside from Abram LaRue, who entered China in the 1880s, the first missionaries to really enter China in force did so months after 700 Christians had been slaughtered there during the Boxer Rebellion, including hundreds of missionaries. Homer Salisbury was killed in 1915 when a German U-boat sunk the ship that he was on. The 1930s were worse. Japan had invaded China and Southeast Asia while Italy attacked what is now Ethiopia. Both were bloody and criminal affairs. But I want to focus on Ethiopia because in this small town of Desi, Ragnar and Alfreda Staden, a doctor and nurse team, ran a small hospital alongside two other Adventist missionaries. Now, Mrs. Staden worried every day that Italian planes might come and bomb her hospital. Two months later, they did. Around 8 in the morning, someone spotted four gleaming white Caproni 101 bombers coming over the mountains with their distinctive triple engines. More followed. They used incendiary bombs and lit the town on fire, dropping 40 bombs on the hospital grounds alone. Thankfully, only three or four bombs directly hit the hospital, and Dr. Staden was able to put out the fires with some extra water that he had stored for just such an emergency. The patients had been evacuated just minutes before, and those who could walk were moved to the trenches that the staff had dug for just such an occasion. The hospital in Desi was also a hub for Red Cross workers and Western journalists in the area, who were by all accounts impressed by the Staden's coolness under fire. The Ethiopian emperor Haley Selassie joined them a few days later for a service of thanksgiving to God. One Adventist missionary, Dr. Bergman, struck up a conversation with an old chief serving in the Ethiopian army. They got to talking about religion because, well, missionary. Uh, Ethiopia has many shortcomings, the chief told the Adventist doctor. God will punish us until we return to him, but the Italians must not do it. The emperor returned a few months later, standing next to Mrs. Staden, as she administered anesthesia and her husband prepped for surgery. They were still dealing with the casualties of the bombing night and day for months. Dr. Staden would always have prayer before each surgery. No doubt he prayed a lot. And this little devotional habit also impressed the emperor more than anything else. The emperor invited the missionaries to dine at the palace out of appreciation. And so in May, Alfreda Staden was in the capital, Addis Ababa. Her friend, the emperor, had by then fled the capital just a few weeks earlier. In the chaos that ensued, it is said that 300,000 bullets were fired. One of them found the bedroom of Alfreda Staden, where she was sleeping. It must have been excruciating for her husband to think about how, the, how many Ethiopians that he had saved from the war, but his wife he could not save. And for that matter, Dr. Bergman's wife would also never leave Ethiopia. A few days after Alfreda Staden's death, her final letter, written about a month prior, 
arrived at a friend's house back in Loma Linda. It describes the psychological toll the war had taken on her and her husband. She describes the constant flood of wounded people traveling hundreds of miles to make it to their hospital. Just last week, she wrote, two people fainted as soon as they got to the door of the hospital and died a few hours later. Others come in burned, stabbed, gassed, which was, of course, a war crime. Many never made it to Desi, and Mrs. Staden describes how the hyenas took care of those people. Such was the call to be an Adventist missionary. You could go from dining with the emperor to being shot in your sleep in just a few weeks. The story of the Stadens was not uncommon. David Trim has found that somewhere between 8 and 14 percent, I can't remember the exact number, of missionaries died during this period. 8 and 14 percent. That's a death rate that is comparable to the U.S. war in Iraq. The omnipresence of martyrdom fed this reverence for the pioneering spirit, fed this desire to protect the legacy of the honored dead. Missionaries were dying. The cause was advancing on every front. The church had reached the mountaintop. Adventism was successfully invading nearly every nation on earth at great cost. The only problem was the German Fuhrer had the same idea. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>